Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site. We can be found at the Nevada Independent. Com. Joined today by a couple of our great reporters, Michelle Rendells and Riley Snyder. Say hello to our podcast audience, guys. Hi, hello. audience. <laughs> That's Riley and Michelle. Uh, they will never be uh, mistaken for uh, Sonny and Cher as a singing duo. Uh, all right, guys. I cannot believe that this is the uh, uh, early August of an off year, considering everything that is already happening uh, in, in the political world, in the campaign world. Uh, and we had something happen this week. This is one of the reasons I tell people, uh, one of the reasons, many reasons I've stayed in Nevada so long. I always see something new. Something new happened this week. The, the legislative session's been over for, what, a couple of months. And, Michelle, you can start. What is going on this week with the legislators? Well, uh, there's an effort to recall... More than one of them. Um, on Wednesday, we found out that there was an effort to recall Joyce Woodhouse, and she's um, she won a close race against uh, Republican charter school principal Carrie Buck. Um, but we've got Stephen Silvercross of all people. He's a former assemblyman who was very much uh, present, still still very much active in the community, and you know I think our speculation was that he. Definitely wanted to try to to win back a seat that he narrowly lost in the past election. He was hanging around in Carson City, in case people don't know, and we wondered what he was doing up there. And we reached the same the conclusion that you just mentioned. Yes. Yeah. So there's an effort to um, to take out Joyce Woodhouse and replace her with uh, Carrie Buck again. Um, and then today we learned that um, it's not just just Joyce Woodhouse; it's also uh, Patricia Farley. And uh, she was, of course, the Republican who became a nonpartisan right before the session, um, was caucusing with the Democrats, kind of exaggerated their minor, uh, majority. They were 12 to 9 when, when Patty Farley was voting uh, with their caucus and, and a very kind of open tension between her and, and Senator Roberson, the uh, Republican minority leader. Uh, so there's an effort to now replace her with an individual named Jared Glover. We don't know a whole lot about him, but uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty pretty crazy to believe that you know they're going to need to gather thousands of uh, signatures to get these people out. And they have 90 days to, to qualify these recalls. And so uh, it's the end of October. They'd have to get it done. It takes 14,500 signatures approximately in Joyce Woodhouse's uh, district. This is clearly being coordinated. The same lawyer is handling both recalls, a guy named Daniel Stewart, who just recently left the governor's office and works for Mark Hutchison, the lieutenant governor's uh, law firm. So this is obviously coming from the top echelons of the Republican Party, uh, even though the governor has distanced himself from it. And just we're recording this podcast on a Friday, just told our Jackie Valley he didn't know anything about it. And there, he said, quote, they're on their own, which is, you know, a, a classic Governor Sandoval distancing himself from something so partisan. But let's take each of these individually, even though we think this may only be the beginning, that Nicole Cannizzaro may also be targeted. Let's talk about a couple of things, Riley. Maybe you can start uh, with this in your typical understated way, and that is talk a little bit about Joyce Woodhouse and why all of us, and pro 
probably others were struck by the notion of recalling Joyce Woodhouse. Well, you know, she's just your typical partisan bomb thrower. <laughs> right. Yeah. Joyce Woodhouse is about like five feet tall. She looks like a little grandmother. She's a former public school teacher. She uh, chaired the Senate Finance Committee, but she's very understated, very takes an issue or takes an interest in a lot of um, public school issues, very non-controversial. And she has ran in and won and lost in a lot of uh, very close districts, which I think is a, a big reason why these recall efforts are being targeted against the individuals are being targeted against. She won by only a couple thousand votes against Carrie Buck in that state Senate seat. She's not up again um, until 2020. Um, but, you know, Part part of, I think, the the reason we've been talking about this and the reason that I think we all have a lot of interest in this is because there's been no effort to explain what the recall's about. There's no website. We tried to call the PAC, the people who are organizing it, nothing. You know, Stephen Silvercross has always been happy to talk. Even when I did a fact check, when I looked at Pulled a Fact on a fetish film he appeared in, he was happy to comment and, you know, do an interview related to that. But People are now asking, what fetish film? Now you're going to have to talk a little bit about I that. Go to portofact.com slash Nevada and you can read all That's about it, really, uh, the really pad about- and... His uh, brief film career. <laughs> but, but we should also say that it's not just that, that, that uh, uh, no one is, is uh, able to get any information on, on the reason for either of these recalls. It's that they're affirmatively refusing to give this information out. Daniel Stewart has told me, the lawyer, that he's been instructed by his clients in both of these cases not to give us any information. And, and you've tried, right, Riley? Yeah. You know, we've called Stephen Silvercrest several times. I tried calling Carrie Buck. Um, I think... Michelle and Megan both tried to call people who were involved in the recall effort against Patricia Farley. You know, we're, we're trying to get anything. Uh, our colleague Megan Messerly talked to a voter who had talked to some people who were collecting signatures for the recall, and they said it had to do with sanctuary cities. There's no, um, you know, rationale that's being given. And when I talked to Senator Farley today, she said she thought, you know, this is just, it's all political. They're seeing what works at the door. They're seeing what gets people out and motivated if this will be a, a it's very like politically motivated and so that's been a frustration for us because we want to know you know why, why should these people be recalled these state level officials and we haven't been given an answer by anyone and the sanctuary cities <clears throat> situation is something that's not as clear as in, in the past um there have been recalls for people that have voted for taxes or things like that are just kind of obvious um the sanctuary cities situation was like a bill that didn't actually get brought up for hearing nobody's like really on the record having voted for it. So it's a little bit more of an obscure thing, but it's something that appears to be an effective campaign issue uh, because Republicans are using it all over the place. Now, sanctuary cities, we should say, you're right, Michelle, there's, there's going to be potentially an initiative on the ballot against sanctuary cities, despite the fact that the Department of Justice has just certified that Clark County is not a, a sanctuary community. And of course, that word has become very highly charged, and I think Republicans think they can exploit it, and Democrats are worried about the messaging on it. But Michael Roberson, who we've already mentioned, uh, the Senate Minority Leader, who has been noticeably very, very quiet on this, but this clearly has something to do with the Republicans trying to force early elections in the Senate before next year because you have a smaller turnout uh, if you have to have a special election uh, uh, way before the election year uh, is going on. But maybe we should explain to people uh, a little bit about these recalls. For instance, you, you mentioned taxes. Recalls are usually done, and they're almost always unsuccessful, by the way. There's only been a handful of successful recalls in, in Nevada history. They're usually done if someone has committed some obvious egregious sin 
in, whether it's saying they're not for taxes and then they vote for taxes, or if they've committed some kind of uh, apparent uh, uh, ethical violation or, or done something really obvious. Uh, th there was nothing like that with Joyce Woodhouse. Patricia Farley, who we can talk a little bit more about in a moment, maybe you could argue that the Republicans would run a recaller because she was a Republican when she was elected and, and, and defected from the party and went and caucused with the Democrats as an independent. But the state law, Riley, and this is why we're, we are frustrated uh, with this, essentially says that they don't have, there's no imperative that they have to disclose this except in one place, right? The reasons for doing it. Yeah. And if I remember right, and I'm not a lawyer, if that wasn't obvious to all of our podcast <laughs> listeners, uh, otherwise we'd be making a lot more money and be wearing much nicer clothes. What do right you now. mean making a lot more money? You brought this up. Every time it comes on here, it complains about the compensation package uh, at the Nevada Independent. It's called a running theme, John. <laughs> That's uh, it. So if, if I remember correctly, the there's a 200-word reason they have to give, and it's only given once they reach the number of um, signatures to, to Michelle shaking her head no. Oh, no, that's, wow. That's but, but I mean, it, okay. it, it only actually. Shaking her head in disbelief. It has yes. to be filed when they file the signatures, but it also has to be on every petition as they're going door to door. Uh, and, and that's why I think we'll eventually get to see it, even if they're not going to not going to release it, um, because they have to have that 200 words on the petitions when they ask a person to sign it. Now, what's true in a lot of these uh, situations is most voters are not going to take the time to read the 200 words, right? Someone came to your door, but said perhaps that someone said they want to uh, let uh, all the illegal immigrants here in our community run wild or, or whatever they're saying using the sanctuary city uh, argument. And, oh, I'll sign that without reading the 200 words. I believe from what I've heard that there's more than just sanctuary cities in there. But with Joyce Woodhouse, again, Riley, your description of her, there's no obvious egregious act that she committed, right? She is, she is, like you say, a, a likable grandmotherly type who uh, everyone likes, right? Yeah, and you know they ran negative ads against her during uh, the last election, and they've run you know a million. I think like there was one with like three things of ice cream because she's triple dipping and getting like purse money and like school retirement, and then uh, you know some sort of income from somewhere else. So. They always find things and they'll always find votes. But I think in terms of Nevada legislators, she's not, you know, the most her, – her head is not sticking out above other people in terms of being a target and someone who said things that would make them the target of a recall. Like you said, um, I think the last successful recall or the last one that qualified for a state legislator was in 1993. It's been brought up multiple times. There were – Stephen Silberkraus, who we mentioned, who was kind of backing this effort, was the target of a recall himself in 2015, the, the recall pack – kind of fell away. It didn't spell his name right, I think, on the, the official paperwork. Um, but yeah, the, these things get filed all the time, and I think there's a very small chance that, that a lot of them will go through. And the Silberkraus uh, one was was over taxes, correct? As, as Michelle alluded to, that was because he voted or was about to vote for the tax increase in 2015, right? That's why the recall was filed against him? Yeah. Or they attempted to, and then, and then it fell away. And, and that makes sense because, you know, a lot of these Republicans had indicated during the campaign they were going to not vote for taxes, and then some of them voted uh, for that tax increase. Uh, uh, they appear to have paid canvassers out there, though. Uh, they do have three months to collect the signatures. As you mentioned, Riley, very unusual to even qualify one of these, much less get an actual election. There's two ways to do it. One is that you can just have essentially an up or down vote, or you can nominate somebody, and that is what both of these petitions do. Let's talk about the Farley one. Jared Glover is someone we're looking into. He's not a well-known figure as well, at least as Kerry Buck is, who was on the ballot and barely lost uh, to Joyce 
Grace Woodhouse. But some of the people on the recall committee, we do know something about, right, Michelle? Yeah. So um, the three that are on the recall committee for Patricia Farley, there's uh, there's someone that's affiliated with um, Hutch, Lieutenant Governor Hutchison. Um, <clears throat> of course, his law firm is handling this case. Um, she's been vocal on the CCSD reorganization. Uh, she's affiliated with a group called Break Free CCSD, and she was one of the uh, women for Hutchison back in his 2014 campaign. Uh, we also have two board members of Keystone, which is this political uh, very conservative group. <laughs> very conservative. Um, so you've got the uh, the chairman of the board and another board member that are involved with this. So these folks are are pretty uh, involved in the inner circles. Now. Very interesting to see John Gibson's name. That's the cha longtime chairman of Keystone, part of a longtime Southern Nevada family. Uh, I'll, I'll give you youngsters a little bit of trivia. One member of the Gibson family uh, was actually a, a Democratic majority leader in the state Senate for many years, was a legendary guy, but he was a very conservative Democrat. It's a very conservative uh, family. For John Gibson to put his name uh, on this, I thought, uh, was 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 very interesting. Again, not to try to connect Michael Roberson, the Senate the minority leader, to this, but who is he is the biggest proponent in the legislature of the reorganization of the Clark County School District. You have this woman who is very active in that that movement. Someone uh, that would have been at these advisory committee meetings that he's chairing. So I mean, uh, and for the record, you know, we've reached out and and silence from. Team Roberson on that. Yeah, it's been an interesting, Riley, and you know this better than anybody. During a legislative session, Michael Roberson would have taken any opportunity to put out a press release, and his aide, Jeremy Hughes, was always trying to spin all of us on how awful the Democrats were and promote the Republican cause. They, they, they have not just been silent. They've essentially said, no way, no how are we going to tell you anything. Has anybody heard from Michael Roberson? Is he in Dick Cheney's bunker somewhere? Where is he? He did a tweet, happy birthday to the state senator. Under Becky Harris today, so he <laughs> is still alive. We know that, but yeah, you know, we've left voicemails. We tried calling all these people. You know, it's very difficult to get any of them on the record and talking about any of this. Yeah, that that's really the, uh, the unprecedented part of doing these recalls in an obvious co coordinated way on Democratic legislators, or uh, in Farley's case, an independent who caucuses with Democrats. That's unprecedented. But the secrecy. The, the utter and, and and what seems like pointless secrecy why not release the reasons that you're trying uh, to recall uh, these folks well, we should tell people that uh, we're we going to stay on this story we have a story that's on the site right now the nevadaindependent.com the entire team has done a great job of getting a lot of facts out there about who these people are and we're going to keep trying to get a copy of that petition uh, and once we do and we will get the reasons we will post that uh, on our site. What is that a website address again, Riley? I forget. Uh, it's um, the NevadaIndependent.com. The NevadaIndependent.com. All right, the other big news uh, uh, of this week, which was not that uh, unexpected when you really think about it, is, uh, and I don't know about you guys, but, but I woke up to find out that uh, a new U.S. Senate candidate had gone on where? Fox and Friends, you know, Donald Trump's favorite TV show, and announced his candidacy. Who was that, Riley? That is uh, Danny Tarkanian, a uh, friend of the site, friend of the podcast. Uh, we <laughs> love to come on. Danny loves chatting. Um, so, yeah, he <laughs> announced um, after a lot of back and forth between whether or not to run for uh, CD3, which is where he ran in 2016. The congressional was, district, yep. Yeah, that Jackie Rosen ended up winning in a very narrow race, running for Senate and running kind of a insurgent primary campaign to the right of Dean Heller, uh, you know, Danny decided to, to you know, take the plunge and run for Senate. Uh, he's really kind of a unique quantity in Nevada politics. He's never 
had too much of a problem getting name recognition and getting fun, you know, fundraising efforts out there. He has a lot of institutional support. Everyone knows who his dad is. He's run for office. This is his sixth time. So he's never won. He's won a, a bunch of Republican primaries, but never been elected to office. So he's definitely being taken seriously by the Heller team. They put out a bunch of, I think, like an email today. They've been tweeting, uh, I think, like fake news at him today. So they're taking it seriously. Um, and yeah, you know, it's Dean's got a, a race on his hands before he gets to whoever the Democrats end up putting up. You know, it's interesting. You, the, the point that you make that I think is interesting is, is that Tarkanian's running, as you say, to the right of Heller. He's running as the, the, a better friend of President Trump than, than Heller, clearly playing to the base uh, that still still supports Donald Trump in almost every state, which is going to be a huge percentage, you would think, in June, low uh, turnout primary. And even though he said, I think he said this to you, Ryland said it to others, that uh, the health care vote uh, uh, was not a reason for him to get in, or I should say votes, because it's t- t- tough to keep track of all of D- Dean Heller's different positions. It seems clear, Michelle, doesn't it, that, that that vote played some kind of role, the final vote? Well, Danny keeps on saying he, he keeps getting so much urging from friends and, and everyone that he needs to run. I, I think probably he saw a surge of that um, after the health care vote and people just frustrated with Dean Heller uh, kind of on all sides and especially on the Republican base side. And and uh, uh, Tarkanian name is very well known uh, here in the state. Now, Michelle, I know you're the biggest sports fan uh, you are aware of Danny's father, correct? Jerry Tarkanian. You see, <laughs> he is a big sports fan. Jerry, he, he always has great name recognition. I don't think I don't think you said this, uh, Riley, unless I missed it. He has run for office five previous times. I believe in four of the five times he actually was the nominee for the, for the Republican Party. He knows how to win primaries. He doesn't know how to win primaries, but the one thing he doesn't know how to do is win <laughs> Senate primaries because he did lose in 2010 uh, in that race with Sue Loudon and Sharon Engel. So. The, that was the, that was against Harry Reid, in case people have forgotten. Yeah, way way back when. Right. So he did lose the one statewide primary he ran for. Um, but you know, like I was saying, he's got great great name recognition. He's got a base of support that's based outside Nevada, so he will be able to raise funds. He told me on on Tuesday when he announced that he's hoping to kind of tap into sort of the pro Trump fundraising market. Um, you know, I think Danny. For him, we, we've talked a lot about healthcare, and when he was on Fox Business talking about this, um, he always gets asked, like, are you doing this because of Heller's um, kind of waffling on repealing Obamacare? But I really think what it comes down to is that he is a big supporter of Donald Trump. During 2016, there was uh, Joe Heck, who was running for Senate, and Crescent Hardy, who was running for re-election, both kind of distanced themselves in this public event with Mitt Romney and with Heller, and they sort of tried to back away from him. And, you know, Tarkanian stayed with Trump that entire time. His wife tweeted at Trump after the election, uh, kind of infamously now, that, like, Danny stuck with you the whole time. Please DM me so we can see about a job offer. So I think that that's kind of been the biggest thing is that he's just been upset with um, Senator Heller about his lack of support for, for the president. Uh, on the off chance that some of our podcast listeners are not as Twitter facile as we all are, when a DM is a direct message on Twitter, which is essentially a private message tantamount to sending an email through Twitter uh, to somebody, and she did do that right after the election. And he keeps using America first. He talks to Trump uh, lingo. Dan- Danny actually has become a better and better candidate. Uh, I-, I-, I think he lost to Jackie Rosen by only 4,000 votes. Uh, I guess there's two ways to look at that. One is, uh, that's very close. The other is, is that maybe uh, he's the only Republican who would have lost 
to to uh, Jack to Jackie Rosen. We should point out because apparently his name's going to come up with every topic. Michael Roberson was the candidate that Danny Tarkanian defeated, and he could very well be a congressman if he had won that. And maybe maybe these recalls wouldn't be taking place. See see the hinge of history, <laughs> Riley. How that works? It's it's amazing. Uh, so uh, I, 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 the, the other thing that's going to happen with this again, I mentioned again, it's it's the second week in August, and you've covered politics for a while since you're so much older than Riley, uh, <laughs> M- Michelle. I mean, this is really early for the, this kind of activity. I think Dean Heller's campaign estimates that already $10 million has been spent against him on television. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, I mean, I think I've always lived in an era when things started pretty darn early. Uh, okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it's a ton of money. Um, you know, they're really looking at this this Senate race and obviously, uh, you know, with, with just more political consciousness around Trump, just I, I just think a lot more news is being made all the time. And so it's just stakes are always high and... Uh, yeah, just a lot of attention on that race. And we're going to be the most watched Senate race in the country. It's it's the only Republican incumbent running in a state won by Hillary Clinton. And we're going to be doing something um, that, that Riley has had experience with in the past, but I think all the reporters are going to eventually have to do in these fact checks. We're going to really focus on the Senate race. Riley's already done one uh, on this race and has another one come and talk about, because you mentioned, and I think the more significant than, than what they said is that Heller's campaign, the first day, essentially, that Danny Tarkanian said he's in the race, immediately came out with an attack on Danny Tarkanian that you fact-checked. What was that? Yeah, so the Heller campaign does this cute little thing where whenever someone announces, when Jackie Rosen announced that the Democrat who's running for Senate announced she was going to run for Senate, they bought a Google ad. So when you type in Jackie Rosen on your computer into Google, it would show up that, like, you know, dangerous Jackie Rosen voted with Nancy Pelosi 92% of the time or whatever. So they did the same thing with Danny, and they just called him Democratic donor Danny Tarkanian wrong for Nevada. It shows up ahead of everything else on uh, Tarkanian, and it's smart from their perspective because it's a lot of people are going to be looking him up, you know, right after he announces. So I was curious because Danny's running to the right of Senator Heller. Um, so I called him. I, I looked into it a little bit. The, the Ben Spillman, actually, who's a RGJ reporter now, used to work for the Review Journal, wrote about this a, a couple of campaign cycles ago. And Danny gave $950 to Shelley <laughs> Berkeley. Um, for those who don't remember, she was a representative who represented District 1 for about a decade, um, and he gave her $950 during her first election campaign in 1998. He said it was because uh, she backed up his dad when he was the coach of UNLV in the early 90s. She was one of a handful of regents who did that. So as he told me, he was kind of incredulous about it. He just said, like, well, you know, I I did that. It was 20 years ago. If they want to attack me on that, they got more stuff that's going to be coming. And um, so in that sense, yes, he technically is a Democratic donor, but he's given several thousand dollars to other conservative Republicans, and I don't think he, you know, was really on the like ready for Shelley Berkeley team when she ran against Teller in 2012. Yeah, and I think that that attack is like, you know, a tiny piece of paper tucked inside the very large opposition research file that the Heller campaign has on Tarkanian. They, they're, they're not using their best bullets right 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 out of the gate. You can find that fact check. It's already out there uh, with our, our unique uh, Abe Lincoln uh, uh, scale uh, on the web- website, the Nevada uh, in Independent.com. We'll talk in a second about, about another one uh, that you have coming. But this was not the only news about people running and, and not running uh, this week. Uh, uh, Michelle, we found out that for sure a constitutional officer is not going to seek uh, a re-election. We found out about someone who's running uh, for state treasurer. Talk about that. Yeah, so um, Bob Beers, the uh, Las Vegas city councilman who recently lost um, a, a bid for re-election, announced 
this week that he is going to run for state treasurer. Um, there had been some kind of some hints about that last week on Facebook, but uh, he, he ended up telling the Review Journal and we were able to talk with him as well. Um, and, and um, you know, he's not terribly in coordination with Dan Schwartz, but Dan Schwartz, the current treasurer, has said he's, you know, he doesn't want to spend another four years sitting in the same seat um, doing the same thing and, and running against the same issues. Uh, he's had some problems getting along with some of the legislators and they've kind of uh, thrown up a lot of hurdles for him. So uh, Dan Schwartz is very publicly mulling a bid for governor. He wants to challenge Adam Laxalt, um, presumably if Adam Laxalt jumps into the, the race. attorney general, right? Yes. Um, so that's a potential Republican primary if both of them end up uh, following through on their plans. So he announced, you know, that he's not going to seek re-election officially to the treasurer spot. Um, we're, we're checking with some of the other uh, folks that are kind of possibilities on the Democratic side. Um, Teresa Benitez Thompson said she was definitely not. She's the um, Assembly Majority Leader. Mm -hmm. And um, we're, we're checking in with uh, Assemblywoman Irene Bustamante Adams, whose name has also been floated for this. Uh, have not heard back on that yet. Uh, what's interesting about this, a couple things. Bob Beers is an interesting character. He's manifestly conservative. He was a very conservative legislator. In fact, he was the one who tried to stop the last major tax increase back in 2003, along with another guy by the name of Ron Connect, who is now uh, the state controller. Uh, and then Beers uh, actually has run statewide before. He ran for governor in, in, in the primary, I believe, in 2006, if I have that right, when Jim Gibbons uh, won. But I think he finished third in that uh, behind Lorraine Hunt, who I think also uh, ran uh, in that. But uh, he's clearly not taking any time to reflect on his loss for the city council and immediately getting into this race. And I think in a Republican primary, I, I think it's, he, he will be very, very difficult to beat. And I think he wanted to get out there early. But the really interesting thing uh, I, I think about this, Riley, is that Schwartz now saying that he's not going to run for re-election would seem to me that there's only two possibilities for him. One is he's not going to run for anything, or two is, as uh, Michelle indicated, he's probably running for governor. Yeah, I think he told the Review Journal that he's going to make some big announcement in early September at the Republican Men's Club, and I didn't know that was a traditional place to make candidate <laughs> announcements, but I guess it is now. And yeah, you know, he's, he's made no secret of he has higher ambitions. He told Ray Hager on Nevada Newsmakers that it's basically a, a certainty he's going to run for governor. He's done polling. I think the National Journal reported today that he's actually hired a campaign team to start working on the race. So, you know, he's he's gearing up. I don't know if he has as much name recognition as he thinks he has in Nevada. And But yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting. He certainly has a lot of personal wealth. He put a lot of that into his congressional bid, I think, in 2012, if I remember correctly. And yeah, you know, it'll... it'll be a, another Republican primary we'll get to cover. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting because as you guys know, and Michelle alluded to this, he's kind of a guy who's not taken that seriously in the legislative building. He's kind of a punching bag. But he did really go out there more than any elected official, maybe even more than Brian Sandoval or Scott Hammond on ESAs. He was like the biggest promoter of that, which is a big deal in a Republican primary. You mentioned his name recognition, but Adam Laxalt probably doesn't have great name recognition uh, either. Uh, and I guess as we follow this, because I think he's probably going to run for governor, uh, uh, you know, how much personal wealth does he really have? He's essentially self-financed all his campaigns when he ran for Congress, when he ran for, for treasurer. I don't know if you, if you guys have looked this up yet. I think he put like almost half a million dollars into that race. Mm -hmm. Does that sound right? He said that he's willing to put about half a million dollars into a race if he, he goes for governor, and, but said he wouldn't you know, self-fund the entire thing. Um, and his his 
kind of argument is that Adam Laxalt is, you know, is very much in with the the national Republican issues and, uh, you know, in Ted Cruz circles and, and kind of has this mindset on some of these issues that are not very Nevada centric. And, and Dan Schwartz kind of sees himself more as the the Nevada expert that's concerned about what's going on here. And and like you're saying, the ESAs, which are, are uh, popular on the home front. And yeah, he really did uh, go out ahead of everyone else to to implement that program. Um, really fought hard to to get the infrastructure going. Uh, this week we learned that they had to kind of decommission all of that. Um, but yeah, he put put a lot of money into having his office really ramp up to to get that program going that never has materialized today. It's interesting you mentioned that story. You had that story this week uh, in, in, on, on the ESA. Let's talk about that real quickly. Essentially, it's like the final white flag being raised, uh, the ESAs that the governor put in his budget that were never funded by the legislature. And so what did they do this week? So basically, uh, right after the ESAs passed, Dan Schwartz got, you know, hit the ground running, uh, got some contract to develop a system that would automate enrollment and manage a database for ESAs. You know the the legislators, especially the Democrats, were were questioning why he would do this and be so aggressive about it when this was very controversial and was probably going to get uh, a lawsuit filed against it, probably get an injunction against it. Uh, that indeed did happen. The contract had to be kind of scaled down into kind of like a cold freeze. The data is on a cold freeze, um, but you had to pay to kind of maintain it. What happened? This week was the approval of a final payment that would close out the contract and just kind of cut the losses and uh, decommission this system for now. It's, it's you know, it wasn't a complete loss. We have some of the software that could, I guess, theoretically be reactivated should the program be funded. Um, but it was sort of a signal, you know, we're not even paying for, for internet hosting services anymore. We're We're just storing things on a hard drive now and kind of just you know, maybe two years, maybe maybe this is never going to happen. Yeah, I mean, there have been thousands of applications, but there's essentially no program unless it gets funded. And that's uh, another reason the Republicans want to take the governorship, take over the state Senate again and try to retake the assembly because they could probably pass, uh, certainly would pass, uh, an ESA bill. Speaking of uh, issues that we pride ourselves on diving deeply into, and especially you on this issue, uh, Riley, the long-running saga of energy, and, and and the politics of energy and the policy of energy. You had a piece this week about yet another chapter in the rooftop solar people not being happy uh, with uh, Envy Energy and what Envy Energy is doing that they are saying essentially is subverting the will of, of a new law, uh, I believe, that was passed. It was like a 390-page filing or something like that from Envy Energy, which you read every word of because you have no life outside of the Nevada Independent despite your poor wages. Is that true? That is true, and thank you for that exciting introduction. You're welcome. And I'm now going to read from the 390 pages of the filing. No. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, the whole net metering battle, as I've talked about many times on this podcast— um, sort of was attempted to be resolved during the legislative session. Uh, they ended up signing this bill that will give rooftop solar customers favorable rates for the energy they put back on the grid, excess energy they create through their rooftop solar panels. It, that's it, what net metering means. I'm sorry to interrupt mm-hmm. you, but just so – because people don't know the jargon. That's essentially what net metering – that's the whole rubric under that is this adjustment in the rates for solar customers. Yeah, and there's a whole fight between the <clears throat> utilities and the rooftop solar and how beneficial it is, if they're saving money, how much it costs to do all this sort of infrastructure to get that energy moved around the grid. So there's a whole lot there I don't want to really get into because it will take me another half hour to <laughs> explain all the issues. Um, but essentially – 
this bill was signed by the governor. It was at a Tesla warehouse. Everyone was sort of happy. There was, I think, like four no votes in the entire legislature. So it seemed they had come to a consensus. Um, they were going to reimburse these net metering rooftop solar customers at 95% of the value of uh, the retail rate of electricity and then go down as more people get in. So it will go down to like, I think it was 87 to 81 to 75% of the value. It was pretty straightforward. Everyone seemed kind of happy with it. Envy Energy, of course, said it was going to cost them uh, tens of millions of dollars to implement and sort of raised concerns while being neutral, which is sort of their, um, you know, standard operation for a lot of these controversial energy things. So the, the, the thing I don't think people understood was the bill being signed did not end the story. There's still a lot that has to happen. So what happened last week was NV Energy, the main utilities, submitted this 390-page application that you mentioned where they're basically calling for a redesign of everyone's electricity rates. And this is pretty boring stuff because people probably don't read their electricity bill. You just – like me, I set it up on auto pay and I really don't get into the details. <laughs> but they want to change it so that the base rate that you pay, the flat rate that you pay no matter how much electricity you use goes up. And the volumetric rate, I told you I would use the word on the podcast, which is sort of the variable and how much electricity you use, how efficient it is, um, that amount would decrease. And they said this is the fairest way to do it. We're prohibited by law from charging an extra fee or anything to people who have rooftop solar systems. So this is the best way we can do it without having the least amount of impact. Now, this has pissed off a lot of rooftop solar people because their sort of their profit margins are based on that volumetric rate of how much electricity you're using. So it's sort of it's narrowing the pool for them. It's concerned the Bureau of Consumer Protection, who have filed to to intervene on this case before the Public Utilities Commission, um, and they they told me that you know this typically is not the way it's done. You, this is, happens in general rate cases, which happens every three years, and it's a whole another can of worms to get into. So. A lot of rooftop solar folks are a little upset. Chris Brooks, the bill sponsor, said, you know, this is just Envy Energy trying to slow down the rooftop solar industry again. Hopefully we're not going to relive 2016 and that whole rooftop solar battle, even though it would be nice to interview Mark Ruffalo if he goes to another <laughs> PUC meeting. Um, but, yeah, that it's up for a pre-hearing conference in August. They have a lot of somewhat conflicting deadlines in the bill they passed in 2017, but I think September 1st is when they're supposed to have the, the rates in place. So – you know, it, there's a lot to have to to figure out between now and then. I should mention, uh, uh, as we wrap up this discussion on on, on the energy, the NV Energy is a, a major uh, donor to the Nevada Independent. I always like to mention that. In fact, in, in case people are wondering, we are a nonprofit. You can go on our website and and you can see all of our donors and exactly how much they've given. Whether it's one dollar or two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars, NV Energy is closer to that higher number than the lower number. But they 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 are a sponsor. So this is a, real quickly, Riley. This is a very bureaucratic process with the PUC. You mentioned pre-hearing conference. When is a decision actually going to be made on this? So it's sort of, it's up to the the PUC. They have um, three commissioners who sort of make all the decisions. And I think there's still an open spot, if I remember correctly. So I think they are required to make a decision by September 1st under law. You know, if they figure it out, this is another concern that people brought up, including Chris Brooks, the assemblyman who sponsored this bill. And it's been sort of a big backer of it was, if you're making a change this big, it's going to take the PUC, which is a quasi-judicial body and, like, really goes through all the stuff and actually reads the 390 pages of application and, like, looks for holes or, or you know, potential for, for where there might be larger issues there, it's going to take them longer than two weeks to do all this. So, you know, we'll find out more at, at this pre-hearing conference later in the month. I mean, it's – they've had three or four weeks to get into it, but this is stuff that usually takes a lot longer than just a, you know, a 
a month to figure out. Well, I hope people will go on the site and read all of our energy stories. Riley understands this stuff as well as anybody now in uh, journalism in the state. And I believe Riley and Michelle, you guys did an explainer together, right, during the legislature about energy that is one, is a fantastic piece if people are confused by this. And almost anybody uh, uh, who's normal, and, and, and Riley is not normal, are, are confused uh, by this. So they, we have some great pieces on NevadaIndependent.com uh, that you should read. Finally, one last public policy issue before we wrap up. Uh, the podcast. Uh, Michelle, you had a piece on a very, very important program in education, very important that was passed by uh, the legislature in 2015. This is really one of the governor's, uh, I think, really pet programs. And uh, it was a little bit controversial for a little bit of the time. It's called Read by Three. Ex explain what happened this week. So Read by Three is an effort to get everyone to read not by age three, but by grade three. Um, so uh, the problem is that as proponents will tell you, you um, read, you learn to read until you're done with third grade. And then at that point, if you aren't on a solid footing with your reading, you're not going to learn anything else. And, and it's just going to, you know, accumulate from there and, and you're going to drop out and all this stuff. So um, so the 2015 legislature made a major investment, um, tens of millions of dollars. I think it was upwards of $30 million in that first uh, two years. Um, to give grants to schools so they could develop literacy programs, hire you know people to run reading centers and do certain interventions um, so that the students would actually be able to read by third grade. The very controversial element of this is the portion that requires the state to retain any student who can't read by the age or by grade three. By retain, you mean hold back? Hold back, um, and so that would basically end social promotion at that juncture. You know. Democrats have pushed back against this, especially during this session, saying, uh, you know, every case is different. This is too absolutist. Um, we need more discretion, flexibility written to the law. Governor Sandoval basically signaled, no, um, we're keeping the, the red line in the sand um, of accountability and, uh, and students will rise to the challenge. Uh, so what they did this week was uh, the Board of Examiners, this is Governor Sandoval, Attorney General Adam Laxalt and uh, Secretary of State Barbara Sagavsky, they approved uh, basically a $1.7 million contract to do a lot more testing. Um, and, and, you know, this is not going to make the anti-testing folks happy. There's a lot of people that think there's just over-testing in the schools right now. But what it's going to do is three times a year um, in, in every grade, kindergarten through third grade, there's going to be literacy tests. And some of these are pretty short. For the kin incoming kindergartners, it's going to be a 15-minute screening to see where they're at. Um, but this is going to give them a lot of data about where students are struggling, exactly what part of reading they're having issues with. Um, the state says teachers really like this because it's going to give them a lot of information. It's going to help them change their instruction for individual students. Um, but of course, there's the controversy about the testing. Of course, the controversy still remains about um, should the state still be retaining students if they can't um, pass this test. And, and the thing is that at third grade, they're going to take this what's called the SBAC test, the Smarter Balance um, test. And that's kind of the main determining factor on whether they move forward or back backwards. There's also other factors. There's exemptions for kids with disabilities. And, and there's other other things you can get around this. Um, but in general, the rule now is you, you need to be able to pass this. Um, and it's going to start with a group of kindergartners that were um, just starting school when these interventions started coming online. So it's not really retroactive and it hasn't really taken place yet. But you're going to start seeing those retentions, I believe, in 2020. 
Yeah, so it'll be a few years in advance. Well, and then that's when the real controversy probably will start if they start holding some of these kids because some parents are probably going to be very, very upset about that. One, one last thing. Let's just ex do an explainer kind of thing. We've done this before, but most people don't know. What, what, what is she talking about? The Board of Examiners. This is three constitutional officers, and essentially all they do is approve contracts, right, Michelle? Yeah, they, uh, they meet once a month. Um, they approve everything from... I always laugh because they're always dealing with new cars. Um, they, they buy all the cars for the, you know, the highway patrol and every state agency. They have to approve these major contracts. Um, they deal a lot with uh, these massive health care contracts that the state has. They're not necessarily going to get a lot of controversy, but, um, you know, they, I think they had a $400 million contract they approved hmm. um, this week. It was for uh, children's dental benefits that are kind of on a state subsidized program. You know, they do these huge Medicaid contracts that are literally just billions of dollars. I think I think they approved uh, $28 billion worth of contracts at one one meeting, these um, Medicaid providers. So yeah, this, this board um, approves all these contracts. Some of them have to go um, to another level, and that is the, the Legislative Interim Finance Committee. So this is a group of legislators that meets in the uh, interim um, and has a pot of money that they can release. And this is what the money, uh, the ESA software program payment that that got approved by the Board of Examiners, but it's going to have to go um, before the legislature, which is a little more of a hostile crowd for Dan Schwartz. That whole discussion of the interim finance committee, you're saying that they can move this money around. Theoretically, they can move this money around. It's never been challenged. There's a lot of people who think the I, I, interim finance committee is unconstitutional, but that's a subject for a different podcast. Uh, you guys, Let, let's talk, uh, let's give our loyal podcast viewers a preview of what uh, we're going to see this weekend in the Nevada Independent. Uh, Riley, what are you working on? Um, so this week I have another fact check on Dean Heller, uh, Danny Tarkanian. If you have watched any of the interviews he's done in the last three days, he's called Heller a never-Trumper. And as someone who was around in 2015 and 2016, way back when, um, you know, Dean Heller said a lot of things about Donald Trump. And I don't know if he ever did the full never-Trumper routine. So we'll be looking into that in some of the um, sometimes conflicting statements he said about the eventual president. I think he told the Washington Post, I was watching the video earlier before we came here, that, you know, oh, you know, I'll support the nominee, but it's never going to be this guy. So it has not aged the, the best. Right. And I, I, the, the, you already said a lot. I think David Drucker, who was then with the Washington Examiner, did an interview with Brian Sandoval and Dean Heller, in which they totally tried to dodge all of that. But it'll be interesting to see that. You can, you can look for that in our Honest Abe uh, scale uh, uh, on, on that. I also want to mention, before I get to Michelle, that speaking of that Senate race, and I mentioned we're going to have a lot of coverage of that, a lot of fact checks. We have an exclusive from uh, our colleague Megan Messerly on Monday. Look for that about some activity on both sides uh, in that Senate race by outside groups already in the state. So we'll, we'll, we'll uh, whet your appetite for that. Michelle, what are you working on? So uh, working on a story with Jackie Valley about um, preschools, and we had an interesting new preschool opened up this week. Uh, it's a partnership between the city of of all entities and um, city of Las Vegas. The city of Las Vegas. Uh, so it's kind of unusual for a city to really get in, into the education sphere. Las Vegas has has been involved in it, um, but it's not necessarily your typical uh, city service. Um, so we're going to get into that and also um, kind of touch on, I, I did a story back in the legislative session about the state of childcare and pre-K in, um, in Nevada, and it's it's pretty uh, dire situation. We're at the lowest 
levels of of number of seats available and, and the affordability of childcare. So uh, checking in on on that situation, how things are going in the state. It's of course very interesting too because the mayor of the city of Las Vegas used to is a founder of a very prominent uh, private school here, and she loves to talk about education. And we always say, well, the city doesn't have anything to do with education, not anymore. Uh, apparently, look for Michelle's story. All right, Michelle and Riley, thanks for coming uh, on the podcast with me uh, this week, and thanks to all of you. Uh, for listening uh, to this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We always want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even that elusive praise, email us at ideas at thenvindy.com. That's ideas, thenvindy.com. And check out our site, as I mentioned several times, the nevadaindependent.com. And rate us on iTunes and subscribe. You can also find us on all kinds of other platforms. Please look for us. I, as always, want to thank our fantastic hosts here at KUNV on the beautiful campus of UNLV uh, in Las Vegas for hosting us for this podcast. I also want to thank our fantastic uh, producer, Joey Lovato, who always makes us all sound podcast smooth. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> See, I told you, there's no sunny and chair. There's no harmonizing there, but we will sound podcast smooth. I'm John Ralston. I want to thank everyone for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week. Smooth. Podcast smooth. Podcast smooth. I'll never sound podcast smooth. <laughs>